Bibles, you can open up uh, to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be finishing up Acts 9 tonight and today. And if you have a Bible with you, um, great. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. And you should be able to open right up to the bookmark. And it should take you at least to the book of Acts, if not to chapter 9, uh, to help make that a little easier for you. And while you're turning there, um, I want to thank uh, Peter, who is our audiovisual team. Peter makes it so that you can hear us, so that there are words on the screen, so that there are pictures, so that all of the things that help us uh, remove some of the distraction from, uh, from our services, Peter takes care of in the back. Faithfully, weekly, uh, he cares for us in that way. So if you are interested, thank you, Peter, for all that you do to care for our church. Um, and if you are interested in serving in the audiovisual team, we can train you, we can get you uh, connected and plugged in, and Peter would love some company in the back, because the dude has to just sit in the back by himself all the time. So uh, I know he would like somebody to hang out with. So if you are interested in that, please let us know. You can use a Connect card, um, or you can do it online as well. So uh, Acts 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, in 1991, Gatorade came out with a commercial, and it had a jingle in it, a song in it. The commercial showed a bunch of people dressed really nicely, because it was the 90s, uh, but a bunch of people in athletic gear, so think lots of neon, and they were doing things, imitating moves they had seen on TV, imitating basketball moves specifically. You see people, you see kids trying to run and dunk from the free throw line. You saw people playing a pickup game, and somebody goes up for a layup, and they're trying to switch the ball in midair between their hands. And all the while, as they're doing these different actions, their tongues are hanging out of their mouth. And the song that played on repeat throughout this commercial was a simple one. It declared what they wanted to do, who they wanted to be. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. I want to be like Mike. And let me tell you, I was six at the time. I mean, who didn't want to be like Michael Jordan if you were in Chicago in the 90s? Every kid on the basketball courts was trying a fadeaway jump shot that none of us had the muscles to be able to do, but everybody wanted to try and be like Mike. People often say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but they also say you are who your friends are. So all of that combined, it begs the question, who is influencing you? Who is shaping who you are? Who is affecting who you are and who you are becoming? Because whether it's seeing an athlete on TV and trying to emulate them, or your person in your friend group who you think has a great fashion sense and so you try to start dressing like them, the people around you, the, the images that you take in, they are influencing, they have sway in your lives, and we need to be mindful about who it is that's influencing us and who it is that we are trying to imitate. In today's passage, as we finish up chapter 9, we're going to be focusing, um, we're going to be focusing on the Apostle Peter. And we're going to see him do and say some things that he has acquired from somebody else. All of the things that he does, all of the things he says in this passage, all of it is done not to glorify himself, not to make himself a big deal, but rather to point others toward Christ and toward the gospel. The very same thing that we hope and pray to do as individuals, as Christians, and as a community, as a church. So that's where we're going to go this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in uh, to Acts 9. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to, to gather, to worship, to celebrate you, to enjoy you, to hear from you. God, we pray for uh, the kids of our church. We pray, pray for Grace Place and the volunteers in Grace Place that you would um, help them, give them patience and encouragement and 
remind them that they are serving you by leading and, and caring for the kids of our church, that they are um, they have a very uh, strong and important task ahead of them to um, reflect your love for these kids in the way that they care and lead that time upstairs. Lord, we pray for the kids of our church that you would reveal yourself to them at an early age, that they might walk with you for a long, long time. God, we pray for our community that as you continue to grow us and continue to grow our relationships and bind us together, that you would strengthen us, that we would be able to uh, love one another well and serve one another well and care for one another. Be intentional to grow those relationships. Be intentional to spend time together and spend time not just with surface level, but to truly engage with one another. God, we come to you this morning having had a variety of different weeks, having had a variety of different even mornings today. But we come looking for rest. We come looking for truth and for encouragement and for challenge and for you. God, there's a reason you got us up this morning. There's a reason you have us in this chapter, in these verses today. And so, Lord, I pray that I would get out of your way so that you can do what you need and want to do this morning. Lord, help us as we hear your word, as we study your word, to also be doers of the word, to respond. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so today's going to be a real good day. It's always a good day to have your Bible open. Today's a real good day to have your Bible open. We're going to do some jumping around. Um, I'm going to start, we're going to pick it up in Acts 9, starting in verse uh, 32, and then we'll go back and talk about it. So in Acts 9, starting in verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So for those of you who have been studying with us, we've been walking through the book of Acts, seeing how the gospel, seeing how the church was formed, and the gospel continues to stretch beyond the limitations of Jerusalem. And in verse 31, we finished up with last week, it said in verse 31 that the church was experiencing a season of peace, and edification and multiplication. So it's been about three to four years at this point since Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. He's in Tarsus preaching and letting the heat cool down because there's already people who want him dead. And we're going to pick things up with Saul slash Paul beginning in chapter 13. And basically when we get to Saul again in chapter 13 through the rest of the book of Acts, he will kind of be the, the main focus point. But until then, we have 
Peter once again. We haven't heard from the Apostle Peter since way back in chapter 8 when uh, Philip went to Samaria and started to preach the gospel there. People believed, and so Peter went down to Samaria, laid hands on those believers. They received the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter is engaging in a traveling ministry of sorts, it says here in verse 32. He's going here and there, preaching and connecting with the believers in these surrounding areas because the gospel continues to spread. And eventually, he makes his way to a place called Lydda. It is about 25 miles from Jerusalem. So, uh, we got a map. We got Jerusalem here, and we have Lydda way over here. It's about 25 miles-ish up to Lydda. And while there, he spent time with the saints who lived there, it says. Saints is the word hagios. It's the holy ones, the set-apart ones. And the Old Testament equivalent of this word holy ones was used in the Old Testament to refer to God's people, to Israel specifically. When talking about a people, it's used to talk exclusively about the Israelites. They were the set-apart ones. They were the holy ones. They were God's people. But in the New Testament, it's used to talk about the church. It's used to talk about the believers. And as we are seeing, we see Samaritans. And very soon, we're going to even see Gentiles get entered into this group. These people, these outsiders are going to become insiders and be part of God's people. His set-apart ones, his holy ones, as the church continues to grow. And so that anyone and everyone who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins would be counted as part of the family of God, one of these holy ones. And so while Peter was there in Lydda, he meets a man named Aeneas. Aeneas is paralyzed and has been bedridden for eight years. Now we remember way back in chapter 3, Peter healed another paralytic man, but the difference between these two is that the one in chapter 3, he was paralyzed his whole life. Aeneas knew what it meant to walk. He knew what it meant to be independent. He had had a regular life, and then something happened that took that away from him. For eight years, he has been bedridden. I don't know if you've ever broken an arm or a leg, but when you have that cast on for an extended amount of time, and then the cast comes off, what happens? Not only does that arm or leg smell real bad, but the muscle has withered, right? It's atrophied. It looks much smaller compared to the one that wasn't in a cast. Aeneas has been laying bedridden for eight years, his body and muscles atrophying and withering away. Seemingly, he's been this way for eight years, which would mean that no doctor has been able to heal him. No doctor has been able to come up with whatever it was that took his ability to move. Whatever has set in this paralysis has caused, has, no doctor has been able to figure it out and stop it. So it seems that this is an irreversible situation. This man was helpless. He had had his independence. He had had his regular life, and his personhood was taken from him. To be a paralytic was to drop a lot of rungs on the social ladder because you were dependent on other people. You couldn't contribute to the community. You were, had to beg, as we saw in chapter 3, with the paralytic who would be by the beautiful gate. You dropped many rungs on the society chain. And it's in that moment, in that brain space, in that world, that this man meets Peter. And we see in verse 34, Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Notice the conviction, the authority in which Peter speaks. It's a command. It's an instruction. It is not a hopeful suggestion. Hey, Aeneas, 
if you have a chance, maybe let's see if you could try and get up sometime in the next couple of days. No, it is a direct command and instruction. But that authority in which Peter speaks here is not his own. He makes it very clear, just as he did with the paralytic in chapter 3. This is the work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who heals you, not me. This is Jesus using his followers, using the apostles, using the disciples to continue to minister and love the world that he created and came to save. Now, we don't know if Aeneas was a believer or not. Some would say that he was because it says that Peter was amongst the saints, and so then he meets Aeneas. So maybe he was a believer, maybe he wasn't. It doesn't really matter. It does seem, though, that Aeneas had some idea of who Jesus was because Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. And there's no follow-up question on Aeneas' end. There's no, who is that? What do you mean by that? He just gets up. Aeneas has no follow-up regarding it, so he knows something of Jesus and this power. Now, I hope in reading these couple of verses that some of you have a little bit of deja vu, that this is triggering some memories uh, of reading the Gospels in your own minds. And if not, I got homework for you this week. We can, you can go back into Mark, because as we're reading this, we're seeing Peter do some imitation work. He's doing something that he saw done many, many years before. In Mark 2, Jesus was teaching in Capernaum. This is early on in his ministry years. And a crowd had formed in the house that Jesus was at. Jesus is teaching and healing people, and the crowd had swarmed this house. Basically, the the doorway is even four and five people deep. Nobody could get in. Everyone's just kind of stuck. And while that's happening, a few men climb up onto the roof of this house, and they begin to dig and dig through all of the different layers of the house, and they create a hole in the ceiling. And then somehow rig up a system where they are able to take this paralytic man that they brought with them and lower him down through the ceiling right in front of Jesus so that Jesus might be able to heal him. Now after some back and forth regarding whether or not Jesus has the, forgi- the authority to forgive sins, he does. He's the son of God. That's what he does. Jesus addresses the paralytic man in Mark 2. In Mark 2.11, Jesus looks at the man and he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Of course not. Jesus is God. Notice the way that Jesus spoke to the paralytic man and compared it to how Peter speaks to Aeneas. I told you it's a good day to have your Bibles open. Jesus says, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Peter says, rise, and make your bed, which would suggest Aeneas was at home, stuck bedridden. For both men, immediately they are healed. In that moment, at that second, this was not a progressive healing over time. This was not, hey, you can stand a little bit, you'll get better in the next couple of days. It was not partial. It was full and complete restoration for that man. We see in verse 35 that this full and complete restoration is a testimony. This man is himself a testimony to the power of Jesus. People saw him. This is a small town. They knew who Aeneas was. They knew that he had been been paralyzed for these eight years. They knew how he suffered. And now they could see him walking, standing, engaging with the world around him once again. And as he did that, the story of what happened must have been told and retold. Aeneas, how are you standing here? Well, Peter showed up, told me I could stand by the power of Jesus. And I can. And now I'm back. Over and over, as the people saw Aeneas, as they heard his story, 
people were turning to the Lord. The miracle happened so that people could know that Jesus is alive, that they could know that he is still in control of all things at all times, including our physical health. This miracle happened so that they could know that there was grace and forgiveness and life and hope and love and acceptance found in the good news of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. We want to be a people who shine the light of, our go- of the gospel with our words and in our actions. That's what we're striving to be as a church. That's what Peter does here, and the people of Lydda respond. He lives out the gospel in his words and his actions, and the people turn to God. Now that brings us to verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Joppa is about 10 miles northwest of Lydda. So let's pull our map back up. So we got Lydda, and then way over here, I cut it off, is Joppa. Right on the edge, right on the edge, right there. It's about 10 miles to the northwest. In those days, that's considered near each other. 10 miles of walking in the desert. Somebody suggested to me last week, hey, let's go to the Museum of Science and Industry. And my initial thought was, ooh, that's too far. And I wasn't walking. That, that's a drive. And I still thought, man, that's too far. But back then, 10-mile walk in the desert, I saw some commentary said, that's like half day's journey, maybe a couple of hours. That's a different kind of people. We see that her name is Tabitha. That's her Aramaic name. Dorcas would be her name in Greek. That's why Luke translated Remember, Luke is writing this in Greek. Either way, the name Dorcas, Tabitha, it means gazelle, which would often, uh, when you talk about a gazelle back then, you would often be talking about the, the eyes of a gazelle because they have these big, beautiful, sparkling eyes. So it's very likely she was born, her parents saw her big, beautiful baby eyes, and they named her Tabitha or Dorcas, or she was really fast as a baby. Either way, her name means gazelle. It's interesting, we get much more detail in regards to the person and the situation of this miracle versus what we did with Aeneas. It says in verse 36 that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Tabitha was the kind of person who lived out the faith that she believed in. Good works, acts of charity, kindness, they were an outpouring of her life, of her faith. She had a reputation and a love for those in her community. We see that care for the community had for her in turn. When Peter shows up, the widows are weeping and mourning. They have lost their fallen sister. And they spend time showing Peter the clothes that she had made. Remember, widows in that day were quite helpless. They often lived off of the kindness and charity and generosity of those around him, such as around them, such as the church. Jesus said, When I was naked, you clothed me, because when you did this for the least of these, You did it for me. That's what Dorcas did. That's what Tabitha did. She tangibly cared for the least of those in her community. Her faith wasn't an abstract concept or something that only affected her Sunday mornings. It influenced and affected her life. And because of that, it influenced and affected the lives of those around her. And so I ask, are we living in the same sort of way? where people would say of us as a church, where people would say of us as individuals, they are full of good works and acts of charity. Her good works and acts of charity endeared her to her community. So much so that even after she passed, 
They didn't just stop considering her, stop loving her. They didn't just forget about her. They wanted to do what they could for this woman who had done so much for them. And so after she dies, they go through the beginning process of preparing the body to be buried. They wash her body, but instead of preparing it with oils and spices, she is instead laid in an upper room. Now in that part of the world, bodies often were buried very quickly after they died because the heat does what it does to a dead body and you want to get them uh, buried before that happens. And so it makes sense with the urging of Peter in verse 38 when they send the two messengers, when they hear Peter is just 10 miles away, please come without delay. Please hurry, Peter. Now maybe that hurry was about, hey, Peter, we set her aside. We want to give you a chance to come and honor her and mourn her. So hurry and come before we have to bury her. Or maybe, maybe it was something else. Maybe they held out hope beyond hope that God would do something through Peter. Because he has a reputation of being able to heal and and perform these miracles. No one asks him to do anything. My hunch, my, my feeling is that amidst the mourning and the weeping and the sadness of losing their friend, there is this little bit of what if going through their minds. What if something big can happen here? We see in verse 37, by the time uh, in those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. By the time Peter shows up, she is very dead, right? Her body has been washed, prepared for burial. This is not a coma. This was not a deep sleep. She is dead. And after Peter spends time with the widows getting what would be the saddest fashion show ever done, he realizes he needs to spend some time alone. He once again does what he knows, what he saw Jesus do so many years before. He puts the widows out of the room, so he's alone in the room with the body, which means the details that we get here come from Peter specifically to Luke, because nobody else is around. Peter, alone in the room, kneels beside the dead woman and prays, because he knew that if anything was going to happen here, It's not because of him, but because of Jesus. And after praying, he addresses that woman in her Aramaic name, Tabitha, arise. Not because of Peter, not because he's special, not because of his power or his piety, but because of and by the power of Jesus Christ himself working through the apostle, the woman opens her eyes and sees Peter, and she sits up. At this point, he takes her by the hand, he raises her up, and he calls everyone in and shows them she is alive and well. Again, we are taken back to Mark 5. In Mark 5, a man named Jairus came up to Jesus and said, Help, my daughter is sick, she is dying. If you would just show up, if you would just show up, Jesus, and lay your hands on her, she will be well. I know she would be well. Jesus agrees to go with the man to his house, and while they are traveling, a messenger comes and meets them part of the way there and says, Jairus, your daughter has passed. It's over. Leave Jesus alone. And Jesus turns to this heartbroken father, and he says, just have faith. And they continue, and they go to Jairus' house. And I want to read the verses to you of what happens there, and I want you to try and pick up the similarities between what Jesus did and what we read Peter do in Acts 9. In Mark 5, 39, it says, When he, Jesus, had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? 
child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him and put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And there was immediately, they were immediately overcome with amazement. Peter was one of the few that was allowed in the room on that day with Jesus. He saw Jesus put everybody else out of the room that didn't need to be there. So Peter put everybody out of the room that didn't need to be there. He saw Jesus get close enough so that he could touch this dead body, which would be a religious and social decision that would render him unclean, unfit. And so Peter does the same. Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha kumi. Talitha is little girl, but there's a softness to it. There's an endearingness to it. It's, it's sweetheart. It's, it's honey. It's young lady. Kumi means arise. Get up. It doesn't mean be resurrected. It doesn't mean have life because you didn't have life. It means get up. What Jesus said to the little girl, her parents had probably said to her morning after morning, sweetheart, it's time to wake up. Note what Peter says in verse 40. Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. If he's speaking in Aramaic, which he would be, it would have been Tabitha kumi. It's just one single letter different from what he saw Jesus do all those years ago. Peter is staring death in the face. Death, this unbeatable monster, this enemy of human existence that rips us from our loved ones. It brings pain and sadness to everywhere it goes. But Peter is much different now than he was all those years ago, sitting in the corner watching Jesus take that little girl's hand. Peter knew intellectually, but more importantly, he knew experientially that if Jesus Christ, it is Jesus Christ who has the final word on death. It is Jesus Christ who decides when the story is over. It is Jesus Christ who says when the final credits roll. Peter knew that if Jesus has you by the hand, death is nothing more than a deep sleep. And so Peter takes this woman by the hand just as Jesus took that little girl and he helps her to stand up. He didn't bring her back to sickness. He didn't bring her back to partial health. She is restored to full and complete health. Peter does what he saw Jesus do. But note the big difference between these two miracles. Jesus was able to, by his own power and authority, call that little girl out of death and back to life. But Peter doesn't have that power and authority of his own. For all his boldness, for his courage, for his ability to stand before these Roman officials and preach the gospel and stand before these crowds of thousands of people and preach the gospel, Peter is still Peter. He's still just a guy. And so before he even attempts to do anything, he gets on his knees and he prays. And by and through the person and authority of Jesus, Tabitha is presented alive. And much like with Aeneas, Tabitha herself is the testimony. People knew her. She clearly had a reputation. They knew that she had died. So her very existence living among them is a testimony to the power of Jesus. She is raised from the dead, not to the betterment of herself, because let's face it, she was dead and with Jesus in heaven. She's dead and raised from the dead, not for her benefit, but for others' benefit, so that others could come to hear the gospel, so that others could come to know that Jesus is alive and working. 
so that others could know that the gospel is real, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus is alive, that he has the final say on all matters, including life and death. Now, before we close out on chapter 9, verse 43, I want to look at. It says, he, Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. You might read that and, okay, so he was staying at some guy's house for a while. Cool. He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a Tanner. Peter had been traveling around, and here he decides to spend some time in this city. Where he stays, though, is interesting. A tanner is someone who works with leather, which means they have to touch a lot of dead animal skins, thus making them, by Jewish standards, unclean, meaning unfit for worship, thus unfit for engagement with the community of God's people. In fact, in Jewish cities, in cities that were predominantly Jewish, there were rules and laws about how far outside the city limits a tanner had to be. They basically had to keep a certain distance away because they were unclean. And yet Peter decides to stay here, which is a little bit of foreshadowing about what's about to come in the next few chapters. It gives us a little bit of insight even into why I think Luke includes these miracles here. Peter is going to meet a man named Cornelius, a centurion, someone very not Jewish, a Gentile. And because of God, he and a few others are going to hear the gospel from Peter, receive it as truth and life, and receive the Holy Spirit. Cornelius and his crew are going to become the first Gentiles to receive the gospel and take it one step farther removed from Jerusalem. And through that event, they will completely change the very concept and definition of what it means to be the people of God. But Peter doesn't know any of that yet. He still, he doesn't know that opportunity is coming yet, and he still has some things to learn. But what he did know is what he did. He knew what he saw Jesus do and say, and so Peter does likewise. As the church has begun and grown and spread, there has always been one purpose throughout these nine chapters that we've studied so far. To spread the good news to point people to the kingdom of God, to point people to the gospel, to tell the world that Jesus had come to live and die and rise from the dead again for them. Peter had a purpose in what he did and said. These miracles pointed people and point us to the kingdom of God. Giving Aeneas back his, the use of his body, restoring life to Tabitha, these are glimpses into something better that's coming. A day in which there will be no more paralysis. A day in which there will be no more sickness. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more war. There will be no more hate. There will be no more discrimination. And there will be no more death. As John writes in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. There is a day coming. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, we wait for it. And we long for it. And we hope for it. This day of newness that is coming. 
What Jesus was doing in his ministry was telling people he was the one who would usher that day in. What Peter was doing with these miracles was continuing the same message. A day is coming, a day of newness is coming that will be brought by Jesus. These miracles point us to that day and remind us that God made a promise and God keeps his promises. That there is a day coming. And he always keeps his promises. And so we know that there is a day that we can look forward to. There's a day that we can hold on and we can endure this world, endure the darkness, endure the suffering, endure the hardship of living in this world at this time. And know there is a day better coming. Because God promised it was coming. And he has kept every one of his promises and he will keep that one. That the kingdom of God has been started, has been initiated in Christ. And we get glimpses of it here. We get these little windows, we get these these miracles, these times where the curtain is peeled back a little bit, where God gives us these glimpses to say that's what it's going to be like, and we can hold on to hope, and we can hold on to that reality that the day is coming where newness and new life and the the idea of death and sorrow and mourning and pain, that's going to be a faint twinkle of a forgotten memory way back that we're not even going to consider because we will be in his presence and we will have newness These miracles point us to the kingdom of God and they point us to the gospel. They point us to the way that we get to experience that day. That was the point of these miracles. In verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. These miracles were an opportunity for the gospel to get preached, to continue to stretch beyond the borders of Jerusalem, beyond the limitations of the Israelite people, beyond the comforts of the known, and into places and people who were the complete opposite of what it looked like to live as an Israelite. Because the gospel is for all people. As Peter is going to learn firsthand in the events coming up, God shows no partiality. It is a message and a gift for all people. As Paul will explain in Galatians and Colossians, it does not matter if you are Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, male or female. If he was writing today, he would go on and say Republican or Democrat, wealthy or poor, educated or ignorant, your skin tone, your family history, your talents, your abilities, your bank account, your successes, your failures, these things do not define your standing with God. What defines it is your faith in the gospel. It is your faith in the gospel. It is your admission of your sin and your need for a savior. Your belief that Jesus is the son of God who came to earth to die on the cross for your sins in your place. And you're choosing for him to not only be your savior, but your Lord, your king, the ruler of your life. The gospel is for all people from Jerusalem to Joppa and beyond. What did he command them at the beginning of Acts? from Judea to Samaria to the, to the ends of the earth. These miracles open the eyes and provide an opportunity for people to hear the good news of great joy that is for all people, that a savior of the world has come, that he lived and died and rose again and offers forgiveness and grace and hope and life for any and all who would put their faith in him. These miracles point us to the kingdom of God. These miracles point us to the gospel, and they remind us of who we are and who we aren't without Jesus. Because without him, we are helpless and stuck like Aeneas, trapped and withering away. Without Christ, we are dead like Tabitha, dead in our trespasses and sins. But it is Jesus Christ who heals us. It is Jesus Christ who calls us to life. It is Jesus Christ who says, get up and go. It is Jesus Christ who takes us by the hand and puts us back on our feet. 
that we might live saved from the wrath of God to be a blessing to others by pointing them to the living and active creator, sustainer, redeemer, deliverer, king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus Christ, who is alive and active and still saving and still restoring and still working in this world today. Christian, you are forgiven. You can forgive. You were shown grace. You can be a people that show grace. You were given a new life, so live as if you are that new creation so that others might see and know the power and work of Jesus who is alive and working in this world still today so that they might know that for themselves. Peter's motivation, it didn't matter the miracles. It doesn't matter if we can debate about whether or not miracles happen today. The point is not the miracle. The point is the one who gives the power of the miracle. The point is Christ. And that is still the point of our lives today, that we are to live in such a way that point others, that glorify others in Jesus Christ, that make much of him and who he is and what he is still doing in this world today. And so we go out so that we might live as lights of the world, shining and pointing them towards Christ so that they might come to know him as, full, as we know him, as Savior and Lord, that we might rest in his power and enjoy his power so that they might know him for themselves that Christ is still working and active and alive in the world today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this gift, this chance to study your word. God, we thank you that you gave us your word, that you reveal yourself to us that we get these accounts, we get these moments, these, in, these, these instances where we get to be reminded of how good you are. That our faith is not just a theoretical idea. It's real, it's active, it makes sense, and it, it affects us here and now. God, I thank you that you care about how we live, about our physical well-being, that you care about whether or not we are sick or hurt, that we're suffering. And you, re you relieve those things. At times you step in and you do what only you can do and you change things. And you give us these moments and you give us these glimpses of what's coming for us.
God, help us to live in such a way that glorifies you, that makes much of you, that points people to know you so that they might come to know you And for those of us who have experienced that, who have tasted and seen how good you are, help us to live like we believe what we claim to believe. Help us to live in light of the gospel. With our words and with our actions, help us to live as the lights of the world you have made us to be. We thank you and praise you. Amen.